This is from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Am I free? <laughs> Thank you, Lorraine. All right. Uh, hey, good morning, guys. You all have such beautiful faces. Uh, that's what I need to now say every time that I come up here, apparently. Um, my name is Jacob. I'm the pastor here. And so, uh, as, as Robert said, I'm going to come up here and tell you what I've learned uh, over this past week. And uh, you can take some notes in it. You can take it home and look back if you want later. Uh, but this is, I'm just kidding, this is, uh, that's not what we do here, obviously. We're coming to, to not hear, have you come and, and hear uh, what I have come to learn and to tell you what to do and how to think. But I'm coming here to proclaim the name of Jesus, to testify to his goodness and his graciousness and his greatness, to extol him and him alone and, and, and urge you to follow him. If what we do when we, when we listen and, and we come is we, we merely just take these things home and we decide, oh, I'm going to look back at this and see... Is this something good for me to take with me or add to my, my, my spiritual lifestyle habits? If it's something that we're merely saying, I'm going to apply it in some maybe practical way. I'm not against practical application. Obviously, that's so much of what we're about. But we're about applying the scripture in a way that says, listen, if the gospel of Jesus Christ does not utterly transform the person that I am, then no amount of adding spiritual lifestyle habits and techniques is going to draw me any closer to him. It's an utter change of who we are that brings us in and permits us to stand before the Lord. With that, we're going to uh, explore Paul's testimony in, in the book of 1 Timothy. We're calling this series A Noble Aim, and uh, the, the aim that's in that title is drawing from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim, or goal, or end, the, the telos of our charge or instruction is love. A love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Now, Paul has been writing this letter to uh, his friend who is, has been doing this hard work of, of reforming and re-centering the church in Ephesus. And, and he says the goal of that church, like, like our church and like any church that would claim Jesus as their king, as their ruler and authority and the one to whom all things are, is, is to love God and to love one another selflessly sacrificially and humbly. The goal of our time here, the goal of meeting in a community of Jesus, the goal of of entering into the family of God and living life with the family of God is not so that you come and get good information that information is merely a tool that can be used for good or for evil. It's not information, nor is it transcendence. We're looking at some way to, to, to reach and connect to a higher power, to, to elevate beyond the hurt and, and hardship of the world. Christianity doesn't, doesn't ascend us beyond our hurts. Jesus, uh, the, David doesn't sing of a good shepherd who, who, who plucks us out of deep, dark valleys of shadows of death, but one who leads us through them. Significant in that understanding. It's not about our heritage or our tradition or our legacy. All of this is about a surrender to Jesus to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to trust in the Father and to carry on his mission and his mission alone. And that mission always, without fail, leads to sacrificial, genuine life giving love. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the highest expression of the will of God in this age is the church, which he purchased with his own blood. Think about that as we consider, uh, we continue to explore the aim of our charge as a community to be love, that as we are living out this thing called church, this community of people who claim the name of Jesus, who are committed to following him and walking in his way, that as we live and dwell and serve and give and love one another, we are the highest expression of the will of God in this age. We are not the ones who tell everybody else what the will of God is, but we are the expression of the will of God. That means what God desires for us, for this world, becomes radically noticed in how he moves through us, prompts us, draws us, urges us, changes us. 
Continue to keep that in mind as we dive a little bit further into this passage this morning. The highest expression of the will of God in this age is the church. And the last part is equally as important, which he purchased with his own blood. I'm going to pray, and we are going to dive into our time this morning. Father, it is a... um, It is a humbling thought that you would use people for your mission to serve one another, to, to, to bring hope and healing and care, that you use broken and messed up people. Jesus, we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, We trust in you this morning as the only truly authoritative, trustworthy voice. May everything that we we say and hear be, be brought to you, be judged according to your ways and your will. And we thank you just for the opportunity to to hear your word to refresh our souls, to train us up, to encourage us, and to send us into mission with you. Just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul is going to share a little bit about his testimony right here. And um, that testimony is, is, is tied into this understanding of who he is in Christ with relationship to Christ and Jesus, and, and why he does what he does, and, and why Jesus matters supremely when it comes to how his church is built and led and ordered and structured and centered. So before we can get to some of those uh, more interesting and, and, and somewhat uh, difficult conversations to work through, uh, we're going to start at the beginning. And, and, and I've... Every time that I read Paul's letters, I, I always get the same sense that, and I made this mistake early on in, in my own ministry, I, I, would, I would take Paul's letter and I'd, I'd read like the second half of it and go, oh, commands, okay, we're commanded to do this. Why? Well, it's because he says that's what I'm supposed to do. And I left it there, and, and what I realized was I'm jumping off the wrong platform when it comes to the commands and the, and the ordinances and the structure of God. I'm jumping off the wrong, the wrong platform to say, do this thing, live this way, conduct yourself in this manner. Why? Because it says so, I guess. Now, if I'm a child of God, when I think about my own children, and my, my children come and ask me, why am I doing this? Because I said so does not fly. It does not fly in that home. If they ask me why about something, and I say, well, because I said so, or because that's just what it is, guess what question I'm going to get right after that? I'm going to get another why. Well, why do you say so? 
Just just trust me. Why? Why should I trust you? Now, here's what I realized later on as I as I continue to study and work through this, Paul never merely just hands out the command and says, this, this here command is, is separate and cut off from everything else that I've just said before. All of those commands, all of those instructions, all of those precepts are grounded in the truth, this foundational belief in who God is and what Christ has done, and therefore, this is how we respond and we react. It's always layered and built upon this steady foundation of who God is and what Christ has done and how he has changed and transformed me. Therefore, this is the life that follows. When I lose that part, that first half, that grounding and foundation, what I'm left with is a fairly unshaky ground to walk on. You need to know, if you are living this life, that that a Christianity based solely on instruction and precepts and rules is, is a fairly shaky ground. They are fairly simple pillars that can easily be kicked out from underneath. The grounding, the firm foundation is not the rules and the precepts. It is Christ. If it's not that, the rest of it doesn't matter. Okay, let's read. How about that? All right, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy 1. Verse 12. Here goes Paul. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy Because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, most of the time when you're reading Paul's letters, Paul almost always, he has a very similar formula that he he approaches, and that formula is, it's not Paul exclusive, it's, it's first century exclusive. It's, it's the common rhetoric of the day. It would be like in our letters, when, when you expect to receive a letter from someone, what's the first thing you're going to see? Dear so-and-so. Why do we say dear? It's just what we do. Are they actually dear to us? I don't know. Like, my dentist is not dear to me, and yet... If I'm writing a letter to my dentist, I'm probably going to say, dear Dr. So-and-so. It's it's part of our vernacular, how we do things. When your letter is at the end, what do you do? Sincerely, signed, yours, love. There There are rules that we apply to letters when we write them. And when we read them, we expect to see those. So so Paul is giving us sort of that, that formula that we would expect to see. Now, um, now, now, in those letters, 
uh, and, and Paul has 13 letters in all in the New Testament, uh, you might note that he gives some sort of thank you message, um, some sort of reasoning for his authority on the subjects that he's about to address, some sort of preface that sets the tone for his message. So, for example, in, uh, in the book of Gala- uh, Romans, uh, Paul is writing and he says, Paul, I am an apostle who has been set apart for the gospel of God. That's him saying, this is my authority, which, which I'm coming to tell you this letter. And he is thankful to the church in Rome for their faith as it is spreading, it is becoming this witness to the world. And he's like, man, I'm so thankful for you guys. People are hearing that the, the gospel of your, the, the faith that you have is, is spreading and they're hearing it and they're believing. Then in the, uh, the church of Corinth, the Corinthian church, Paul comes and he says, hey, it's Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ by God's will. And Paul comes and says, hey, you know what, church? I am so thankful for how, how well you guys have been gifted in ministry. It feels like grace is just abounding in your, in your community. And people have all these different gifts, and they're using them, and they're just supremely gifted people to do the work of God's ministry. That is great. He has other problems for them later that's going to be speaking of those gifts. They're a little out of whack. But he always starts by usually thanking them. Uh, The church in Galatia, in Galatians, Paul comes and he says, Paul, an apostle, not by men or from men, but by God himself. Galatians is a little different. He has nothing to say of nice things for them because Galatians have really blown it. He goes from there and he goes like, I can't believe you guys left the gospel. If you've left the gospel, he's like, I have nothing nice to say to you. The gospel is all there is. If you leave the gospel, I, I, I don't have anything nice to tell you. Get back to the gospel. That's Paul's message in, in Galatians. Um, so there's kind of a trend, right? You can see Paul's formula in all of this. Now, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he calls himself what? An apostle, once again, by the command of God. And, and, and it takes a little bit down the list, but now Paul gets into this thanks message. Now this time, Paul normally is thanking a church or a person for something they've done and all of this. Uh, This time, he is thanking God, um, or he's thanking Christ in this sense, and he calls Christ, uh, um, well, and, and the word Christ there actually means the anointed one. When you see the word Christ, it's not his last name or a preface. Christ, basically, you can, um, a good word to translate in our vernacular nowadays might be king, King Jesus. Maybe, maybe think about that when you're reading. If you read Jesus Christ, read Jesus the king, Jesus the anointed one, King Jesus. He thanks King Jesus for the opportunity to serve on his behalf. Jesus alone is the reason for Paul why he does what he does, why he leads the church, why he starts churches and shepherds people. Now, there were other people in Ephesus and around the world who were claiming authority in the church by different means. 
It's funny, actually, in Acts chapter 20, Paul warns them of this. He says, listen, there will be, he's speaking to the, the elders in Ephesus, and he says, listen, there will come a day when you are going to have to defend your faith as elders. There even will be those who come up from among you who seek to divide your church and get, you, get others to lead, to follow them instead of Christ. Be prepared to defend. Well, what's going on in the church in Ephesus? There's a reason to defend. There has been a drawing away towards other ideas, other things, other than Jesus. And so uh, these men who are coming and claiming all of these different ideas, they're coming and claiming authority in the church in different ways. You need to listen to me and follow me because I am a skillful teacher. You need to listen to me and follow me because I have a unique theology. I know things about God you can't even imagine. You need to come and follow me and trust me and my words because I I have this really amazing historic lineage. I'm related to some really fancy people in the Old Testament. I can trace my lineage all the way back to Moses himself. So you should listen to me. Follow me. Trust me. You should listen to me. Follow me. I've been practicing this this thing, and it has revolutionized my, my, my faith, my spirituality. I think you should start practicing this. Each one claims... I am the one you should follow because my method, idea, heritage is clearly superior. What does Paul claim as his authority? None of that. Paul is not the agent of his ministry. His upbringing, his knowledge, his skill set do not make him the sent one of God. In fact, when Paul does refer to himself, what does he say? He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. I was a blasphemer. I slandered and profaned and reviled the name of Jesus. I told people things that were not true about who he was. I profaned his name. I was a persecutor. I tore people to shreds because of who they were in Christ because of how they were following him. I breathed threats of murder against them. I was an arrogant man. Other translations might say a violent man. And the the word there in Greek is is hubristes, which refers to our pride, our hubris. Uh, That such a pride, an intense pride that perpetuates injustice and harm of others. 
a pride that says, not only am I great, but you are terrible. I was an arrogant man. Paul's credentials, as listed here, do not qualify him to lead the church of Jesus. Not in the ways that you would expect. And in fact, Paul's earlier actions pre-conversion would be the things that, uh, of the type that the modern church loves to villainize and demonize. We love it when Paul type Saul before he became Paul, but Saul-type characters, the blasphemers, the persecutors, the arrogant, we like it when they get owned, right? When they just get put in their place. How dare you encroach on my faith? How dare you profane my God, are blaspheme against him. We love when they get set right, put in their place. Canceled, to use common language. Go ask one of the, two, the 20-year-olds in the church what canceled means. Um, we love it when they get canceled because of, of, of the actions and the attitudes that have, 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 um, have, have shown them the truth about who they are. When the tables are turned and the persecutor becomes the persecuted and the arrogant becomes the humiliated and the slanderer gets slandered, beware that your cry is not mercy but justice. We have to watch out that our cry when we see the owners get owned is not, yeah, justice prevails instead of mercy. Does Paul receive justice? Paul receives mercy. He says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy. Mercy is the Greek word eleos, and, and, and I've heard it before said that, that mercy uh, is, is kind of boiled down to this idea of, uh, I deserve punishment, and yet I get a free pass. It's like the flip side of the grace coin. Grace is a free gift that you don't deserve. Mercy is, um, mercy is God's wrath relents. Uh, that I do deserve. I do deserve punishment and wrath, and yet God holds back from his punishment, and so that's mercy. I don't get what I do deserve, and instead I receive grace. I do get what I don't deserve. Now that is, uh, that is certainly true, and to be merciful in our understanding is that idea, but, but the biblical concept of mercy actually runs deeper than that. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament word for compassion, rahum. And rahum is this deep, womb-like love of a mother for her child. It is a love that says, I know who you are because I made you. 
There is nothing that you can do that will change my affection for you, that can turn me away from you, that will cause me to hate you or despise you. I will continue to pursue you because you are my child. Mercy is is rooted in the compassion of God. Compassion is that deep feeling of affection that pulls one toward another to care and to lift up and to restore dignity and value and humanity. Paul's credentials do not qualify him. They condemn him. And if we are honest with ourselves, our credentials do not qualify us to serve the living creator God, the Holy One. They condemn us. And yet, Paul receives mercy. We receive compassion from God. God pulls toward him anyway, not because he is the ideal ministry candidate, but because, not because of all the good things that he has done in the name of Christ. Well, since you did all these good things for me, I guess I will, will bring you up, raise you up, make you a, a minister of the gospel. That qualifies you. No. Paul says it is, uh, in fact, the opposite. He says it is because of his ignorance and unbelief that the grace of God overflowed along with a faith and love that are in Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this. This can get tricky sometimes when when we hear those words. Wait, are you saying that Paul is saved because he was ignorant? So that just means I should be ignorant about everything, right? If I want to get grace, I just need to be more ignorant. If I want to receive mercy, I guess I just need to stop believing. No, let's not read it that way, please. Paul is not saying that his ignorance, that the fact that Jesus is the Christ was lost on him. He is not saying that his unbelief, his refusal to admit that or trust in that, is the catalyst for grace that in order to receive mercy, you must be unbelieving or ignorant. What he is saying is that even unbelief and ignorance are not so much for Jesus to overcome. In fact, you might say that all of us before Jesus were lost in our ignorance and our unbelief. And it's kind of the default setting for the human race. When you are bent toward yourself and your desires and your interests and your agenda and your purposes and your your, uh, protections for yourself, when you are bent inward upon yourself, it will lead to a sense of ignoring a God who asks all from us to trust in his ways as the best way. 
it will cause fear and then subsequently an unbelief that God's ways are indeed the right way. You're saying that I should lead. I've been working on this path for a really long time. You're saying I need to leave all of that? Do you know how long I've been building this kingdom of my own? I need to abandon that and go to yours instead? Our natural bent on our own is ignorance and unbelief. Paul's message to Timothy and to us is that the grace of God is not predicated on what we do for him, nor can we do anything that God cannot overcome. That is the nature of God's grace, a grace that overflows. Martin Luther explains grace in this way. He says, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light. Light up ten, indeed, could light up ten worlds. Just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it. Just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ, our Lord, an infinite source of all grace. So that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. Paul is not better than the other teachers in Ephesus. It's a big point of what he's trying to come. He's not coming. Paul is not saying, listen, Timothy, I need, I need you to hear what I'm going to tell you, not because I am better than those other teachers that are fighting and pushing and, and trying to draw others towards them. I'm not better than them. And neither are you, Timothy. And not I, church, And neither are you. None of us are better. The only one who can overcome the destructive effort, destructive efforts of human tradition and self-seeking morality is the king himself, the compassionate one. As ministers of the gospel, as witnesses of Christ's goodness and glory, the best testimony that one can give this world is, there but for the grace of God go I. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there? Verse 15. Paul's going to basically, this is kind of like part two of, this, of a similar testimony. And he's going to repeat how he has received the gift of mercy. Verse 15, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. But I received mercy. For this reason, that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience 
as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love how he just explodes in worship song right in the middle of his testimony. Paul is telling Timothy, he's like, listen, I, I have a truth for you to remember. And you can bank on this one. I know there are all these other voices that are crying out to you, pulling towards you, begging you to hear them instead. But he's like, listen, if you get one thing from me, I need you to trust this saying right here. Uh, in fact, uh, throughout the, the pastoral letters, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, those three books, um, there are five trustworthy sayings. This is the first of those five. <coughs> And so, uh, and the reason, like I said, the reason why he puts it this way is he's like, listen, there are all kinds of different sayings all pulling at you. It's going to be hard. I'm going to say things, and they're going to immediately try to contradict them, pull them, say something different, draw you away from all of these different things I'm saying. But listen, you need to hear this. This, I know for a fact, is trustworthy and deserving of all of your acceptance. And it's this statement. Christ Jesus, Jesus the King, came into the world to save sinners. Not righteous, not teachers, not superhumans, not role models. Sinners. The dirty, the outcast, the broken, the misfits, the rebellious, Jesus came to rescue Jesus came to save sinners. And then Paul says, you know what? I'm the worst of them. I am the worst of those sinners. The, the word there in Greek is, is protos, uh, which is like our word prototype, okay, the first. It's, um, and so Paul is saying, like, I am the model of sinners. If you are looking for the definition of sinful, broken, messed up humanity, you will find my picture there in the dictionary. It's me. I am, like, everything that there is that's broken, sinful, messed up, you're looking at it. I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I am, I am that guy that everybody, look, like, if you want to be a sinner, you look to me as your model of, like, oh, yeah, I need to be like him. That's what Paul's saying. I'm the worst sinner there is. Notice Paul also doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He says, I am the worst of sinners. Presently, even now. Paul has been transformed in, in body and mind and spirit and, and, and heart, and he is certainly not who he once was. He is no longer a blasphemer, persecutor, a, an arrogant man, clearly. But Paul recognizes the fact that by himself, on his own, in his own strength, without Jesus, he is still just as limited and broken and unqualified as he ever was. 
it can be easy to take on the name of Christ. To call yourself a Christian, in other words, means that I am going to, I am going to, the same way that you would call yourself an American, you, you give yourself the identity as one connected to, born into, affiliated with the country of America. As a Christian, you are born into, affiliated with, connected to the name of Christ, Jesus and who he is. You're taking on his name. And it can be easy to take on the name of Christ, to claim salvation, to join a church, and then spend the rest of your life doing things in your own way. Jesus is affiliated with you, and you do your due diligence to represent him, but really, at the end of the day, it's all on you. And what you are doing for him, and how you are, you are keeping up with, with him, and, and how you are, uh, are, 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 your testimony stops being about him and starts being about you. Jesus is a footnote in your Christian testimony. But really, it's your story. The difference between a testimony that is rooted in 1 Timothy 1.5 and one that is not is all too clear. A testimony that is all about Jesus will say, all that has been done, all that I have seen, all that I have known, all that I have experienced, I had nothing to do with that. I am not the active agent in my life. Jesus has covered me with his blood. He is, he is changing. He has radically invaded my life. I have been rescued, not because I believed the right thing, but because he was faithful to me and kept his promises, and he saved me. The testimony that is, is all about Jesus. The testimony that is not says let me tell you what I have done in the name of Christ since I accepted him. I served in ministries. I gave faithfully. I excelled in leadership and in teaching. And people are drawn to me. And I, I have just continued to, to serve and do all these things. And I've risen up and I'll lead the church. And I think God's pretty happy with that. If your story of spiritual transformation, this is, hear this, please. If your story of spiritual transformation has little to do with Christ and everything to do with you, is it really spiritual transformation? If your story of spiritual transformation has little to do with Christ and everything to do with you, is it really spiritual transformation? That's Paul's point. He doesn't see himself as the chief, the champion, the, the victor of all that is good and right and moral. He is the worst of all sinners. And because Paul realizes uh, that the more he recognizes how messed up he is, the more aware he is of God's mercy that is poured out on him. Now, sometimes in our desire to downplay our sins, 
we do not refer to ourselves as sinners, but as saints. I'm no longer a sinner. I am a saint. Now, I'm not saying, please, continue to call yourself a saint. That is also part of your identity. But it's not the whole of your identity. According to Paul, you are a sinner. And you are a saint. It is not a binary choice. It is a one and. I am both a sinner who is saved by grace, and through grace I am a saint. You do nothing to receive mercy, and yet you receive mercy. You can miss the mark by, by, uh, by doing that. You can also... On the flip side, you can also miss the mark by, uh, by, by losing yourself in the despair of your sin. I am a sinner, and I could never be a saint. I will not accept mercy because I do not deserve it. That is also not the identity of a Jesus follower. The follower of Jesus says, I am the worst of sinners. The sinnerest of sinners that sinners can be. I, don't, I know sinnerest isn't a word. But I felt like it was appropriate. I'm the sinnerest of sinners that sinners can be, and yet I've received mercy. God drew towards me anyway and rescued me. And so Paul then tells us again why he received it. Why did I receive mercy? Not because he was so deserving. He says, I received mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, King Jesus, might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now again, I, I think Paul here is, is, is taking this, this concept of patience and he's pointing us once again back to the Old Testament. Yahweh, this this one God, the God of Israel, the creator, he refers to himself in the book of Exodus as a patient God. A God who is slow to anger. Now in Hebrew, that word slow to anger literally means long of nostrils. Yahweh is saying, I'm gracious and compassionate. My nostrils are huge. That's literally, it's, it's fascinating. Um, so think about this, though. When, when anger hits you, when you are overcome with ire and, and frustration and just it boiling up inside of you, what happens? Your nostrils flare out, right? <laughs> right? 
We lose it. And, and, and what's funny is when I, I found like when I get frustrated, I'm not blowing up and jumping up and down and as I'm jumping up, my nostrils are flaring. It's usually when I'm sitting down and I'm trying to be really nice and trying to be really respectful, there's only one tell that I am furious at this moment. My nostrils can't stop, right? I'm just like, huh? but I'm trying not to show it, but, I'm, but there's like one physiological response I can't control and it's, right? Like it's just boiling out of me. Breathing fire, I think you probably do breathe fiery murder and judgment out your nose. I think that's, when, G, when, when Paul says he breathed murderous threats against them, it's probably through the nose is what he was doing. Uh, it's my guess. I, I can't say that for sure. But, but, but we, 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 we pour out anger and murder and judgment against those who have wronged us. And, and Yahweh says, he's like, listen, my nostrils take a long time to flare out. My wrath does not come easy. And I am, my mercy, my compassion triumphs judgment. That is my, compassion is his default setting. The default setting of God is compassion. Yahweh is extraordinarily, and you might even say supernaturally, patient. It is a kind of patience unique to the one God who is over all things. And here, I love this, proclaimed in no uncertain terms, this same Jesus possesses the same supernaturally long nostrils. It's a hereditary trait. That was a joke. He too is extraordinarily patient. Jesus is not of this world. He is the one God in flesh and bone who came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Yeah. Why is Paul the worst sinner given mercy and appointed to serve and minister and lead the church? It is so that Jesus can show the world how patient he is. Not to tell the world, man, did you see how good of a guy I picked? Have you looked at this, Paul? He had it all. It's so that in him, the worst of sinners, the, the extraordinary patience of Jesus might be displayed to the world. that there is nothing that he cannot overcome. Is your story of faith, your call to ministry, and, and make no mistakes, you are all ministers, servants of one another in this church. That is, that is your role here, for the ministry of the gospel. Is your story of faith you are called to minister and serve. Is it rooted in 
and dependent upon your work on Christ's behalf or Christ's work on your behalf. The former, if it's about your work on Christ's behalf, will lead people to follow you. The latter, if it's Christ's work on your behalf, will lead people to follow Jesus. Now, I, I share in Paul, I was, I was sharing with some others this week, Paul's testimony hits deeply to me because as a, as a leader in this church, as a, as a minister of the gospel in this church, as one called and appointed into that role as a shepherd, I do not want to make followers of me. Because I am a bad savior. I, I promise you, if you are following because you want to follow me, I'm going to screw everything up for you. It's not going to end well. If you are following here because you want to follow me, teaching, giftings, ability, whatever, it's not going to end well for you, and it's not going to end well for me. I am a sinner just like everyone else. I have been a blasphemer who has used Jesus' names for my own selfish advantages. I have been a persecutor who has condemned others for what I believe to be slights against the faith, not the faith, not the true faith of Christ, but a faith that I built up for myself. And I do not deny to have been an arrogant man. Pride has been one of my greatest downfalls since I was a little kid. Arrogance is something that is, continues to follow me. Please do not follow if you are following me, I will shut this whole thing down right now. It's not what we're here for. Do not become followers of Jacob. Go follow Jesus. It is because of him and his grace and his compassion that I get to serve you that I get to teach you, that I get to encourage and, and to lift you up to him, that I get to pray for and with you, that I get to listen to you, that I get to hear your heart, that I get to train you to serve God and to serve one another in love, not an obligation, not for accolades, because of love. For one another. It is Christ and Him alone and the extraordinary patience that He has displayed that permits me to stand before you today as a sinner 
saved by grace, overflowing. It is not to me, it is not to you, it is not to the legacy of our church, it is not to the the future of ministry, whatever the case may be. It is to, credited to, glory to, honor to, one person and one alone, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It is trustworthy and true. Amen. Jesus, you are deserving of all glory, honor, and praise. The commitment to follow you each and every day does not testify how good we are, but how good you are. I ask that the the hubris of our hearts be cut down. That the story, the testimony, the witness that we share be because of what you and you alone have done. I recognize, Father, that Every day sometimes that I, I, I struggle with my, there will be times that I wrestle with, with my um, qualifications to do this job, to work here, to serve here, to, to, to spend my time here. And I lose sight of the fact that I'm not here because of what I can offer you. my abilities. But that you have appointed whom you would appoint to serve and to love in your name and yours alone. You are the true king. You are the only God. You alone are eternal without beginning or end. You alone are without limit. And you have power. You alone are without limit in flesh and bone. But 
it is to you, our God. We're to be honored, we're to be glorified, we're to be lifted up and made known now, forever and forever.